0: How many of you have heard the phrase, it's a family thing, as an explanation for either something awesome or something awful that's going on in somebody's life at the moment? I I think most of us, when we hear that phrase, it's a family thing, just get it. We, We know that families have dynamics that are both really encouraging and lovely, but then also really challenging and ugly. There's just part of family life that, that is not fun, but also some of the richest parts of life have to do with family. So when we get to a text like this, where Paul is addressing families, children and their parents, people are going to have this text hit them in very, very different ways, especially depending on the circumstances of their family and their upbringing. So I want to say a a brief word to individuals who would identify as not really having a family, not having a spouse or children, and and then to individuals who have had really challenging family experiences. Those of you who don't have children, and and I'm included in this, might read this text and think, there is nothing for me here. It's time for me to move on and... um, I hope everyone else pays attention because their kids are awful and, and they need to get fixed in the sermon or something like that. Um, the, the way that the Paul has laid this out is he started by establishing the household of God and making the point that Christians enter into God's family. And then as we read the rest of the New Testament, the way that we hear our relationships described are in family terms. To where we relate to one another as fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters. So whenever there are instructions given for families, I think there's a real sense in which there's always a parallel in those instructions for the church at large. So if you don't have children, either at this stage in your life in your home or you don't have children period, these instructions are not something that should be ignored, but you should reflect on how they translate into your relationship in the church so that you can start to understand what it looks like to be a spiritual father and a spiritual mother and a spiritual child as you relate to one another as the household of God. These things are are very important, and, and I think it's especially important for those who would take on the the fatherly and motherly roles as they relate to individuals in the church. There's, there's a way for individuals as they get older in their years to look at everybody younger than them in the congregation as, as just an obstacle to, to enjoying life or, or something that's just simply problematic. Why can't these people just understand me in the way that I've always done things? Why do they have to do things differently? Well when, when you're relating to us young folk, I might say, think of us as your children and, and hear the commands to, to fathers and mothers and, and relate to us as spiritual fathers and mothers. And I want to say particularly because as you get to know the younger people in this assembly, you you might come to find that they feel like they don't have fathers and mothers. That that their relationships with their fathers and mothers are or non existence And it just might be that God has put you in this assembly with them so that you can relate to them as, as the father or mother that they don't really have. And, and for those of us who are younger, as we look at the children in this church, I think that there is a calling on us to take on a fatherly and a motherly role to these children, not to replace their parents, but to relate to them with love, showing them what Jesus showed to children and showing them what it looks like to have a good father in heaven who loves his children. So those of you without children in the home or, or without children at all, this text is not one to ignore but one to embrace. And, and perhaps we have even harder work to do as we translate that into our relationship to others in the church. So I want to say a brief word to those who would say, my, my family situation is awful. Uh, especially as I think of my parents or, or as a parent looking at my relationship with my children, that there is just nothing happy to talk about there or, or perhaps just very little happy to talk about there. I, I just want to remind you that the way Paul talks about families is that th- he, he knows that's reality and, tha- and that is reality for many, many people. And he wants to tell you that God is welcoming you into a different family. And it doesn't solve all of the hurts. It doesn't remove all of the problems. But over and over and over again, individuals in broken, hard family situations find a deeper and truer family in the people of God. And if that's you, if you, if you say, my family is not a family, you can have a family here. God, God offers that to you. And, and as you come into that family and experience family there, I think it starts to give you the wisdom that you need to know how to navigate the broken genetic family situation that you're in. as, as you start to see what it looks like to love and forgive and, and to find true family elsewhere, now you are in a position to offer that to, to those who have not offered that to you or to offer that in a way that you as a parent may have failed previously in relationship to your children. So, so fundamentally what I'm saying is that whether you have had a great family experience or not, there's a family that God has created in Christ that is there for you, and you can find great relationships there. And so I would say do that. Don't don't let your bad experiences with, with people the age of your children or the age of your parents keep you from connecting with this family here. Instead, let this family be seen as a solution that God offers. And, and that Paul picks up on Jesus' teaching— where he asks, who are my mothers and my brothers and, and my siblings? Are not are they not these? Well, these in this room can be a family for you. So with with that preface, let's enter into this text, and there are essentially three um, audiences I'm going to address this morning. First, I'm going to address our entire church and note the implications of this text for our church. And then I want to address the children in our church, though. Sadly, many are ill this morning, uh, so I guess parents and uh, siblings, if you're here, you get to communicate that at home. And then I want to address parents, and especially fathers. So let me talk to our church at large. Paul begins in Ephesians by addressing children directly, in Ephesians 6.1. And um, th- we don't want to let this reality pass us by. As I've commented in the other household code situations with husbands and wives, and then we'll consider this next week with slaves and masters, Paul breaks from the conventional way of talking to a household by addressing what might be considered the subordinate members directly. He speaks to wives and children and slaves directly, where all of the people back in his day, when when they would write a household code, they would have just directed everything to the Lord of the house and the Lord of the house would have needed to just enforce this upon everybody else. By addressing what might have been culturally considered the inferiors in the household, Paul is giving them worth and value in in essentially saying, you matter, and and you need to hear this is a word for you from God. As he does this then, I, I could imagine a situation where the Ephesian church receives this letter if they're operating based on uh, the, the rest of society, they might have had to call some kids into the room to pay attention with this surprised look of, hey, Paul is talking to you. Like children, um, Paul, Paul has something to say to you. So it's almost like when, when you're on the phone with a relative and they ask to talk to your kids and, and you have to call them into the room. Maybe that's what was going on here. But I think Paul creates a situation now where children are expected to hear the word of God. And, and I don't think that Paul wanted children just to hear these two verses. I think that he's expecting that children have listened to this entire letter up to this point. Now, that maybe gives some implication for us as a church as we think about the way that we relate to children and include or exclude them from our gatherings. And and I would just want to suggest that we we need to include children as much as we can in our church life and in our gathering on Sunday mornings. Now, I want to make sure that I'm not you're not hearing what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we need to eliminate age appropriate ministries and have all children of all ages in our gatherings at all times and we do nothing specifically for children. There's a very well, I don't know how popular, relatively popular enough that there's a whole organization dedicated to family-integrated church that does teach that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should eliminate age-appropriate ministry for children. What I am saying is that I think there can be a tendency for adults, to find a way to send children off to other rooms so that we can do our thing without the distraction and without w- the, the problems that children bring to a gathering. And, and we need to avoid that. Um, right now, we currently have nursery during our morning service, and that's it. We don't do a children's church uh, because we just don't have enough adult volunteers yet to be able to do all of, all of that. Um, so as our church grows, and as there are more children and adults to do this, as we start to implement children's church, we need to be clear that as we do this, our goal is not just to to remove an annoyance from our gathering, but instead we, we want to think carefully about the age groups that we send out and who we include and who we don't. And I think Paul gives us a little bit of an example here, where there are children who can hear and understand these brief commands. And notice how brief they are compared to the other groups, and compared to husbands and wives and to slaves and masters. It is just a brief, short command um, I- in a way that children can understand. And and I think that the children here are of an age where they can hear the, the command to obey their parents and they have the, the capacity to either obey or disobey that command. And so there's a sense in which when there are children who are old enough to hear with understanding, we should include them in, in our morning gatherings. And, and I think that there's not a black and white way of doing this but we at least need to consider this as we integrate or or separate children from our gatherings so we need to look beyond this text i think there are other texts like in nehemiah when ezra gathers the people for for the reading of the law and it's described as the men and the women and all who could hear with understanding came and listened i think there are other markers throughout scripture that help us try to frame a way forward but paul's comments here directed to children indicate that they should at least at some point when there's understanding be be incorporated into the gathering of our assembly. And as we grow and progress, we need to not cut them out too prematurely or too frequently. There's another idea that we have to wrestle with as a church when we read a text like this that might not come to mind immediately when you read this command to children, but as you're exposed to friends and family in other church environments and as you read other books this is something that I, I think we need to deal with and that's this notion of children being included in the covenant community that's directly connected to infant baptism in in baptism some of you come from families who your your family members are Lutheran or or in other paedo-baptist traditions so I I don't think that this is a waste of our time to consider Many church traditions would read this text and say something like, look, Paul is addressing the children. These children are included in the covenant community. Therefore, we should include children in our covenant community. And the way you do that is by baptism. So so baptize your infants, baptize your children, include them in the covenant community, because that's what Paul is doing here. Is that what Paul is doing here, though? We, we have to ask. And, and I think that as Baptists who say that you come into c- the covenant community by faith and repentance through baptism, we, we, uh, we emphasize that there's a voluntary nature to this. We determine I am going to follow after Jesus. And, and we just recognize that at some level children can't do that particularly infants who can't even speak cannot do that. And so we have to wrestle with this reality that sometimes children are talked about as if they're part of that believing covenant community and, and then our theological position that I just articulated. And so I think the way forward for us falls in, in two directions. One direction is that we need to realize that from infancy your children have a sociological identity as Christians. That is to say, if, if um, an Islamic family is before you and they have an infant, you would identify their, their child as Islamic, just as they would identify your infant as Christian. So there's a sociological level of belonging from infancy where we can say that, that children are Christians in a sociological sense not in necessarily a redemptive, salvific sense, but by virtue of them belonging to you as a Christian, they, they also belong to, to Christ and his people. Paul talks about this in some ways in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about um, a, a spouse that's a believer and one that's unbeliever, and he talks about the children that, that are made holy. and And I think this is in part what Paul is getting at is just by virtue of being born into this family, there's a sociological identity that's being formed. What this means when it comes to following after Christ in faith is that a, an individual who grows up in a Christian family will have a somewhat different experience of conversion than someone who's grown up in a sociologically pagan family. Someone who grows up outside of the Christian context very often we'll have a clear in-the-moment conversion from paganism to Christianity, where children of Christian families have a conversion that's more of a conversion from a sociological identity as Christian to a true vibrant connection to Christ where they affirm Christ for me and I am Christ. That's that's one of the challenges that we face in in the movement in American Christianity from the days of the Great Awakening to to now, where where you might see just really stark transitions. Um, and and now you're talking to children who say, "I don't know when I came to faith. Like, I think when I was like one, my parents had me praying the the Lord's Prayer and asking God for forgiveness when I." and in confessing that I'm a sinner, in trusting in Jesus. And I can't think of a day when I didn't trust in Jesus. Well, as much as a conundrum that that might pose for Baptist, you know, soteriology, that's not problematic. That's really, really good. That's a gift from God. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. He wants us to raise Christian children as Christians and pray that one day they will become not sociological Christians, but true Christians who follow after Christ, who take up their cross and follow him. Now, does this mean that we need to baptize babies? No. That That's where I think the sociological identity versus Christian identity is really, really helpful. We raise our children as Christians, but we long for and pray for the day that they will follow Christ on their own. Um, you who have children have probably notice as they age, there, there comes a state, they're always disobedient, right? There's, there's always something that th- they're disobeying you. But, but there's a sense in which eventually, especially around junior high age, there's a sense when they, they no longer take on your family identity as their identity. They start pursuing their own identity apart from your identity. And, and while disobedience happens throughout, there's a, there's a sense when they're younger that they understand, this is my family, these are my people. But as they start getting into junior high and especially high school and then totally when they hit college, they're, they're not really taking on the family identity in the same way. And, and I think that's eventually they have to decide, how am I going to relate to my parents? Am I or am I not? And there's something of an analogy that happens with, with Christian children, where eventually they don't take on Christian sociological identity anymore. They have to start to decide, is this who I am or is it not? Is, am I going to be part of God's household or, or am I chasing something else? Am I going somewhere else? So that doesn't provide all of the answers. But as you interact with your, your Pado baptist friends, I think we at least have some guidelines as we press forward that say, Identity is more complex than that, and and we have to work through it. Beyond that, I think that we don't have to assume Paul is speaking to infants in Ephesians 6.1 when he tells them, obey your parents in the Lord. Should infants obey their parents in as much as they can? Yes. Are they hearing this and understanding this and choosing to or not to? No. The, The disobedience of an infant is probably just like a maturity brain development thing that is somehow also wrapped up in our sinful natures more more than a choosing to disobey so even when you're posed with this I don't think you need to concede these children are infants therefore let's let's baptize them if you don't care about everything I just said re- relating to these things um, that's okay but know that there are people who have family members and who have come from church traditions that that would, relate to this text in exactly that way. So it's good for us to think about these things. And, and I always think these things are worth talking about because as, as I have friends in particular who have transitioned from, from sort of a credo-baptist uh, viewpoint to paedo-baptist, I always want them to know there there's are answers to this. And, and it's not as if Baptists are ignorant of these things. So when you, you talk to your paedo-baptist friend and become convinced Realize, come back and, and talk to us, and, and we'll talk about baptism. We're, we're working through and thinking through these things. Okay, so that's, those are my words for our whole church at large. I want to talk to the children that are here. Uh, so if you're, if you're a child and, and you've maybe been lost in everything, now is time for you to pay attention a little bit. Paul is talking to you. That's pretty amazing that an apostle would talk to you directly. So I don't know if you've ever talked like if what if your family has another family over and the adults are talking in the room. If an adult like stops talking to your parents and talks to you, you might get a little nervous. You might feel a little bit on the spot, but it's they're also saying you matter and and we want to talk to you. Well, that's what Paul is doing here, and Paul is giving you an instruction. And really, this is like the only instruction that's given just to children in really like all of the new testament and that instruction is for you to obey your parents god has given you a calling which is to obey your parents in the lord now you might be thinking but i don't like to obey my parents well that's okay to feel that way um but but God has a plan for you that's better than your plan for you. And in your primary job, every day when you get up, is to obey your parents in the Lord. And Paul says, for this is right. This is fitting with the way that God made the world and the way that God made you to obey your parents. Now, you might be thinking, can I ever disobey my parents? Well, I have good news for you. God says that on occasion you may disobey your parents, if they are commanding you to sin. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. And so there's a sense, children, where you, especially as you grow up, have to start determining, are my parents teaching me to love God and obey God, or are they encouraging me to do things that that God would not want me to do? Well, I know most of your parents, and know that they are not trying to teach you to disobey God and, and to do what God wouldn't command. But, but it's good to recognize God wants you to be thoughtful about the commands you hear. And, and praise the Lord that God has put you in a Christian family where most of you can say, I can just assume that what my parents tell me to do, I should do. That's not always the case. There, there are families where there are children who have parents who don't love God. And they have to, they have to decide am I going to disobey my parents and and read my Bible today? Well, well you have a gift from God if you have Christian parents where you can almost just by default obey them. Now, you might be thinking, children, okay, fine, I'll disobey my parents, or (laughs) I'll obey my parents, but I don't really want to, and in fact, I'm going to make them earn it. I'm going to make them count to three I'm going to make them bribe me, I'm going to throw a fit, and I'm going to make it hard for my parents to obey me. Well, if, if Paul had stopped by telling you just to obey your parents, maybe you could have some wiggle room to do that, but he doesn't. I think, I think he realizes that children like to make it hard for their parents to get them to obey. So he says, honor your father and mother. So the way that you're supposed to obey is not by making it hard for them, but by making it easy for your parents to be your parents. You're supposed to honor them. And and that means, you know, things like obeying right away with a good attitude. That's hard, isn't it? But that's what honoring your parents is. That's that's what honoring your parents means. Now, if you're thinking, but you don't know my parents. God gave me parents that are... Really hard to obey, and um, we're in 2021. We shouldn't have to obey our parents. Well, Paul adds on to his command for you to honor your parents by pointing out that this is the way that God made the entire world, and children throughout history have always needed to honor their their parents. And in fact, when you honor and obey your parents, your life is a better life. Um, so he gives this command from the Old Testament where he he points out that this command comes with a promise, and that is if you obey your parents, you'll live a long time in the land. Now, I don't want you to hear that and say, um, well, I'm going to obey my parents so I can live to be 100 or something like that. That's not what Paul is saying. He's telling these people in Israel, if you disobey God, you get kicked out of the land. If you obey God, you get to stay in the land for a long time, and you get to you get to live with the blessing of the Lord. And I think that's what Paul is trying to to tell you children, is that when you obey, when you honor your parents, that the way God made the world is that if you obey them and honor them, you're going to have a better and more enjoyable life. And using this example of of Israelite children. And if you think about it, I think you'll agree with me that that Paul's right. Think about all those times you disobey your parents and you make it hard for them. Do you usually go to bed happy or mad? probably mad are you smiling or are there tears lots of tears are your parents happy or frustrated well they're they're usually frustrated so the, the point is that God gives us a wise way of living which is honoring and obeying and that's God's main job for you now okay so that that's tough sometimes but but your life will actually be better because of it um, let me say one final thing to you children God correlates obedience to parents and, and learning to obey God as our father. So I think in a way, your parents are like training wheels on your bike where you practice o- obeying and honoring them. So that way, when you're an adult, you can obey and honor God, your true father. And you might think, can I wait till I'm an adult? And I'll just grab, I'll jump on the bike and I can, I'll be able to ride really, really well. It doesn't work that way. It's like if if you're preparing to run a marathon, um, you need the training, you aren't going to be able to perform the day of. So if you aren't running every day and and building those muscles, when it gets time to to show up for the competition, you're going to lose. You just don't have the ability. Um, So obeying and honoring your parents builds the kind of muscles that you need and that God knows you need to obey and honor him. So we will pray for you that you can do this. And, and we will pray for your parents that they will make it easy for you to obey. And in fact, I think that's the main thrust of what Paul is getting at is he turns his attention now to parents and fathers in particular. So we've talked about our whole church. Kids, we've talked to you. Sorry for putting you on the spot, but it's a sorry, not sorry situation. And now parents and especially fathers, it's time to consider Paul's instruction to you. Paul is talking to fathers. Mothers, you don't get to be off the hook here, though, I don't think. Paul's following that convention of the household code, talking to the, the main contrasting subordinate and authority. Mothers... You, you are included in this. And so when, when Paul instructs fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but to raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord, this, this is true for mothers too. Uh, but I think it's especially true for fathers who will model what this looks like and demonstrate what it looks like. I think before we can even hear these instructions, we need to push back against a popular trend in Christianity and that is for, for mothers to be the sole raisers of children and, and fathers to be raising, raising the bank account numbers or something like that. I, I think there's a way of talking about parenting and husbands and wives that says, Mom, your, your place is in the home. Dad, your place is out at work. And, and moms raise kids on your own. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. Fathers and mothers are involved in parenting their children. That's why children are instructed to obey their and honor their fathers and their mothers. And and I think that there's this tendency that Paul is combating for fathers to abdicate their role in raising their children. And and perhaps that's another reason why there's an emphasis here. But we need to hear these instructions for both parents, but fathers stepping forward and taking the lead here. Now, Paul Paul tells them. These fathers, he tells parents not to stir up their children to anger. So here's a negative thing: don't do this. And then he gives a positive thing: bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I I think we could kind of pose all of this and say Paul is answering the question: How do I make it easy for my children to obey and honor? Um, So these commands are for you, but I don't think the motivation is just: How do I make it easy? For me, as a parent, I think the question you ought to be asking is, how do I make it easy for my child to honor and obey their parents and therefore honor and obey God? From the very beginning, parenting is a self-giving thing, and and that's true in the way that you raise your children as well. I think sometimes it can be easy to make it hard for children to honor and obey and, and then to blame them and punish them and relate to them in harshness because they didn't do what you want. That That is a real struggle. And, and then you combat, combat that with the cloak of hypocrisy of posting happy pictures on your Instagram saying that life is perfect at home when it's anything but. And in that I think simulates even further harshness with your children. Um, even as you get them, try to get them to pose with a smile for, for that picture. We see the irony in all of this, and there's this weird combination of child idolatry and selfishness in that, that come together, and it looks like harsh treatment of children. Well, Paul wants to provide a different way forward. That's not to stir up anger in your children. Don't relate to them in a way that they're possessed by this anger that hardens them against you. And this is, this is where I think we look at the Old Testament, especially with God treating Israel as his firstborn son. Think about these things. When, when, when God the Father treats someone harshly, it's to harden their hearts, and he treats Egypt and Pharaoh that way. When, when you act harshly towards your children, you're treating them not as your firstborn son, but as Pharaoh in Egypt, and it will lead to a hardness of heart. God, how did God treat his firstborn son, Israel? With mercy and compassion and steadfast love. When you read the Pentateuch, you, you have to walk away with an amazement of how easy God made it for Israel to obey him. Every step along the way, God is making it easy for his children to obey him. And, and that's something that you need to do too. Don't stir up anger in your children. What does it look like to stir up anger in your children? And what does a guy without kids have to say about this? You might be thinking, uh, what gives you the right? Well, first I'd just say, Paul didn't have kids, and, and he's saying this, and I'm just repeating what Paul said. But maybe to help you out, I'm going to appeal to a guy named John Chrysostom who wrote in like 350 AD. So this guy is way older than me and way older than all of you, and I think he has some helpful information for us. When this guy in his sermon on this text is talking about not stirring up anger in your children, he lists a number of things that that will do this. Um, One of them is by treating them overbearingly, not as free, but as slaves. One, one way that you harden your children is you treat them in an overbearing way. You should not treat your children in an overbearing way. I, I think in our day that can work itself out in two ways. Both are helicopter parent, if you've heard that term. One is you're hovering over your children and, and you're doing everything for them and, and you are like just working them like a puppet, um, even if it's trying to positively help them out. The other side is being so quick to jump on their case and be harsh toward them. Both of those are overbearing and crushing. And and when you crush your child like that, you're you're doing this weird thing of where you're choking the life out of And, and where you want them to move towards you with warmth and affection, when you are overbearing, either with affection or with, with um, rebuke, you're, you're crushing them and you're not drawing them in. You're making it hard for them to be drawn in. He talks about disinheriting them and disowning them as another way of, of stirring up anger in your children. And I think that this perhaps could be transposed into our day, particularly as your children get older and they start doing things that you don't like. And, And they start gaining a reputation that you don't like or they start making decisions that you fundamentally disagree with. I think there's a way that parents, especially of older children, can distance themselves from their children. Not in a way that's removing them from their will or something like that, but that keeps them at an arm's length and says, unless you start looking like me, you're not going to get my affection and, and you're not going to get my love and care. And, and I think there's a misconception that parents can sometimes have of my goal is to raise this children to look like me, and make all the decisions that I've made and and be all that I am and even all that I failed to be. I'm going to live vicariously through them and if they fail to be me, I'm I'm going to separate myself from them. I'm I'm not going to give them my right pride and my right love and my right acceptance. Final category of things that chrysostom addresses is imposing morality on your children that's not the morality of the lord and what he's getting at here is that parents are instructed to raise their children in the training and instruction of the lord and and i think that it's easy for every one of us as we look at other people to say I want you to believe everything I believe and have all the same standards I have. And we start talking about our preferences and ideas as if they're the divine word from God himself. Chrysostom points this out as unhelpful. Well, why is it unhelpful? Well, on the one hand, it's unhelpful because you might be wrong. And, and you might change your mind later on. And if you've instructed your children in a way that equates your preference... That, that perhaps your children need to obey in those moments with God's direct word. When you change your mind or change your preferences down the road, that can be really confusing for your children now to try to understand what it means to, to follow after God and to obey the Bible. So I would just encourage you, especially with those those of you with kids who, who can pick up on that, as you change your, your preferences and your instructions for them, and as they have the capacity to understand, try to distinguish between this is where we're arriving, and, and that might change for you as you get older or, or revert back, but, but there's a distinction between our preference for you and, and God's direct word, and as you get older, you're going to have to navigate that and put God's word into action in preferential ways that require his wisdom. I think the other problem that comes from equating, you know, a parental, you know, preference with the direct word from the Lord is that when a child begins to reject your parental preferences, they can jettison God's word as well. Um, And and if we can help children understand the distinction between applying God's word or or trying to uh, follow it in a unique situation in, in, interpreting God's word, I think they're going to be helped out in a, in a very big way as they continue to age and to grow. I think in my own experience as a child, this is something that caused me to almost leave the faith altogether. When I grew up in, in a home, in a world where everything was equated as this is the word of the Lord, when I started to see things that actually weren't in the Bible at all, especially as I got into the, the high school years and, and beginning of college, I, I started to justify dispensing with true commands of God be, because I just put them all together in the same thing. And, and I, don't, I know that I'm not the only one who's experienced that. And I think one way that you can raise your children in the training and instruction of the Lord that will last for a lifetime is helping them think through the Bible and apply it in their lives, bringing them into that discussion with explanation as they get to an age where they can understand more and more clearly. I think then, parents, as you relate to your children and you ask, how can I help them obey and honor that's, that's going to be a question that will guide you as you determine the way that your children are going to live and operate in your home that that does not, on the one hand, jettison instruction, nor, on the other hand, embrace an overbearing approach to your parenting, to, to where you throw down on your children at a moment's notice, or you never say anything to your children at all. The, this idea of training and instruction in the Lord requires involvement and discernment. And I think even in the way that you read the New Testament letters, and Paul is a father, relates to his son Timothy and others, you, you get to pick up on this orientation of parenting that brings together mercy and kindness and forgiveness with clearly speaking truth and admonition and instruction. There is no checklist that will accomplish this for you, and there is no book that will tell you precisely how to do this, just as there's no black and white list for directing how husbands and wives relate together. So when we ask, how do I carry this out? We have the same question or same answer to that question that we asked, when how do we carry out our roles as husbands and wives together? And that's by looking earlier to the paragraph before where Paul begins this whole section and he instructs you to pay careful attention then to how you walk not as unwise people but as wise. You you as parents in every stage of your child's life have to pay attention to how you're parenting and to seek the wisdom of the Lord if you do this. Just give an example. I think my parents in law have done a really good job of modeling this. Even in when, when Katie and I were dating, they did they not care that day, When we were dating, they had some particular standards of, of dating relationships that, that I thought were overbearing in and, and perhaps. Um, and down the road, just about a year ago, they they sat us down and said, Hey, as we've been relating to your younger siblings, one of whom is here this morning. We've we've been rethinking the way we did this and we're we're having different expectations and guidelines for them than for you. And this is what went into our thinking about it. And and I we don't know if we would have done it the same way or not, but this is what we were aiming at. I, I really appreciated that example of my parents in law paying attention to <laughs> even you know, they kept eight kids, and as they're getting to the last ones, they're still evaluating and paying attention and seeking wisdom in how they parent and instruct and guide. And and they were willing to admit, we we would have done this different, perhaps. Well, that's really instructive and helpful for my wife and I as we think about what parenting is. It's not figuring it out once and for all, but it's seeking the wisdom and discernment of the Lord so that you can pay attention to your parenting, uh, guided by the Spirit. And, and that's what it comes back to over and over again. A spirit-led parenting, and a spirit-enabled parenting, and, and for children, a spirit-enabled obedience. Well, as we think about these things, I, th- I would encourage you not to let this be one of those sermons that ends here, but instead let it be one where if you have children, talk with them about this over lunch today. If, if you're a father, uh, talk with, and, and mother, talk together about these things. If, if uh, you're a father, gather with the other guys in this church. Grab some other dads and say, hey, help me pay attention to how I'm fathering. Moms, do the same thing. That, that's part of the beauty of the community is we don't hear these things and then walk away and put them into action in isolation. But we come together as we think and pray and, and brainstorm and seek to honor the Lord with wisdom together. Let, let's pray. I'll pray for you parents. I'll pray for you children, and I'll pray for us as a church. Father, I pray for these parents who have this heavy task of raising children, not in their own image, but to reflect the image of Christ. I pray that you would give them wisdom and understanding and discernment to do so, that your spirit would lead them, and that their children would be able to testify to the way that your love permeated their family relationship. I pray for the children in this assembly that you would allow them to work out their calling to obey and honor their parents and that you would grow them and equip them to have an orientation towards obeying and honoring you. We're so grateful that they have this Christian family identity and we pray that they would be raised in a way that they would carry that forward as they determine to follow after you the rest of their days. I pray for this assembly, that this church would be a family for those without one, that this church would be a family for those who are growing up in this assembly, that there would be a spiritual family relationship that is fostered and cultured here as the generations worship together and praise you and seek to follow after you, ultimately pursuing your wisdom and relying on your spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen.